People are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. This is the first thing I hear when I come back to the city. Blair picks me up from LAX and mutters this under her breath as her car drives up the on-ramp. She says, people are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. Though the sentence shouldn't bother me, it stays in my mind for an uncomfortably long time. Nothing else seems to matter. Not the fact that I'm 18 and it's December and the ride on the plane had been rough and the couple from Santa Barbara who were sitting across from me in first class had gotten pretty drunk. Not the mud that had splattered the legs of my jeans, which felt kind of cold and loose earlier in the day at the airport in New Hampshire. Not the stain on the arm of the wrinkled, damp shirt I wear, a shirt which had looked fresh and clean this morning. Not the tear on the neck of my gray argyle vest, which seems vaguely more eastern than before, especially next to Blair's clean, tight jeans and her pale blue t-shirt. All of this seems irrelevant next to that one sentence. It seems easier to hear that people are afraid to merge rather than, I'm pretty sure Muriel is anorexic, or the singer on the radio crying out about magnetic waves. Nothing else seems to matter to me but those ten words. Not the warm winds which seem to propel the car down the empty asphalt freeway, or the faded smell of marijuana which still faintly permeates Blair's car. All it comes down to is that I'm a boy coming home for a month and meeting someone whom I haven't seen for four months, and people are afraid to merge. These are the opening sentences of the career of Brett Easton Ellis, taken from his first novel, Less Than Zero. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kelly, and thanks for joining us this month on Literary Guys, where we are talking about the career of the man, the myth, the legend, Brett Easton Ellis. This is something that, when we were putting together the season, we talked about, should we talk about American Psycho, um, maybe less than zero, and the more we started talking about it, one we couldn't really come up with, one that we agreed on would be the right text to have, but then we started talking about how the entire breadth of his career had so many touch points into some of the masculine themes that we had been describing. So it led us to basically what we're doing this month, which is taking a look across the board at the good, the bad, and seemingly quite often the ugly of Brett Easton Ellis's career in what it says about men. Yeah, and I think if you're going to be following along with us this month, we'll probably spend this most of this opening episode just talking about the writer himself, some of his works in a broader scope. And then I think we really want to drill down. I think we're going to talk about Less Than Zero maybe next week. Right, right, right. Probably also pair that with uh, Imperial Bedrooms, the sequel to mm-hmm. Less Than Zero. I think we got to do probably mostly a full episode on American Psycho. I think we got to go deep on that one. And let's not forget about the movie and the movie sequel. We will be talking about that on week three. And then uh, week four, you and I had talked about this over drinks just the other day. I think we've got an interesting comparison with another author that we've reviewed here on Literary Guys that we kind of want to put them head to head and kind of have a discussion about the many similarities of their themes and the differences therein as well. So that'll be probably week four. I think that'll be a very insightful conversation. Actually, as we're getting started with this discussion, I do want to say to our listeners that there's going to be a lot of discussion of some very depraved things that happen in the course of not just any one of the novels, but pretty much all of the novels in different ways, shapes, and forms. 
I don't want to put a specific warning about any particular thing because if you can imagine something offensive, it probably is going to come up in these next four episodes. So I would say if you find these types of topics disturbing, and there's some very disturbing things here, I would not be offended if you chose not to listen to this month's episodes because each one of them is likely going to touch on to some very disturbing concepts, and those are things which I understand are not everyone's cup of tea. I like the quote, the opening lines of Lesson Zero that you decided to open this episode with, because like you said, that is what kicked off this guy's career, written at age 19 and 20 when he was at Bennington College in Vermont, published when he was 21, put him on the literary main stage when he was a senior in college still. It's pretty exceptional. And it isn't just one thing about Brett. It is so many elements. It's his writing style, which harken back almost to a Hemingway-esque, short, punchy sentences Mm -hmm. kind of vibe. It was the no-holds-barred use of language, which for a mainstream novel was revolutionary. We were starting to see it in maybe some fringe literature, maybe from the gay community at the time. But to see it in a novel like this, I think is something very revolutionary. And I think what we'll keep coming back to here is he was the author who really was able to capture the zeitgeist of the time in a way that I don't think anyone else really did. And sadly, it's not a great zeitgeist. No, it doesn't reflect favorably on those eras at all. And in fact, Brett Easton Ellis is, is rather ashamed that a lot of his novels have kind of become shorthand for 80s nostalgia because he himself was not admiring of the era, both when he was writing those stories, nor is he now. So it's an interesting conundrum for an author to be in. So before we get too deep into this episode, we usually recommend before listening to the episodes here to have read the book. And we're not really doing that this month. Mm -hmm. This is really an overview of his entire catalog. So we're not going to say, hey, you know, you should go read all of these books. I haven't read all of the books that we're going to be discussing. Some of the ones I've read, you haven't, and that you've read and that I haven't. And I think that's fine because I think it'll give us a broader view of what's going on here and also different deep dives into time periods of his writing because he's been writing now for what, like 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. So it still would be good to have read a book. More so than just having watched one of the movies. He has many film adaptations that we'll be touching on here as well. But to have read a book by Brett Easton Ellis. And so I'm not sure which one I would recommend. I think as far as like to drop right in and to just kind of get that sort of pure, uncut, unstepped on, as he would say, experience of the literature. I mean, Less Than Zero is right there. It is. It's a really impressive debut novel. In kind of recontextualizing it for uh, this month, as I've been reading some other Brett Easton Ellis works, I do think for him, it now reads as a little bit less mature than some of his later work. He definitely refined his style more later in his career. But if you just kind of read it in a vacuum, it's an exceptionally well-written book that, like you said, really does capture the zeitgeist uh, for better or for worse. So I think that's a great way. It's a short book, pretty quick, easy read. Mm -hmm. You could also probably dive right into his not controversially named at all autobiography, White. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a lot of Brett Snell's purists would probably tell you, hey, just go straight to his original screenplay, The Canyons, starring Lindsay Lohan, which is a thing that happened. Yeah, I think Lesson Zero is a good place to start. Uh, If you're curious, American Psycho, probably his most well-known novel, and we are going to talk about that more in depth later this month. But really, you can't go wrong. Just get an idea for his writing style and kind of the topics that he likes to continually touch upon 
I think if you've read one book, you know who Brett Easton Ellis is, at least stylistically. I don't know if I'm speaking entirely out of turn here because I haven't read all of the books, but I did notice that as the career progressed, they did tend to be a little bit more plot-driven and a little bit less about pure character evolution. And even those character evolutions that we see are often very subtle. We don't see a lot of deep development early on. We're basically just learning more and more about them, not necessarily watching them change. Yeah, and his work becomes increasingly more meta as time goes on, both referencing previous works, interweaving a kind of Ellis verse, if you will. I will. Of shared characters, and even at times writing as himself, by himself, in a fictional world. It it, it gets very confusing as you kind of go on into his oeuvre. But yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think there's something really interesting, and I think probably lost to a general audience in Less Than Zero about the character of Clay. We'll talk about that again next week. But I think maybe in a reaction to people not understanding his work, he probably has become increasingly meta. Yeah. You know, I was thinking on my way over here how I would kind of describe this man's style. And I don't know if it's the best way to describe it. But to me, he writes about very dirty things in a very antiseptic way. Yeah, I would agree with that. If we look at his depiction of sex... Mm -hmm. It is portrayed as this almost undesirable thing. Like, no one ever seems to enjoy it. Right. And if they are enjoying it, it's for some other reason. So a theme that definitely permeates that as well is the lack of meaningful human connection. That what we see, and really we're hit over the head with right away in less than zero, and it continues on, is that relationships are superficial. And the names are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. The character development is sometimes there, but it's him playing with different themes of similar archetypes that makes these characters in many ways interchangeable with each other. And I think that's also why, as you say, that we have common characters, common themes, even between the books. There's not that much disambiguation that's occurring between those things. I think it's fair to say a lot of his work is semi-autobiographical. He is very much pulling from the world he knows, that kind of privileged, yuppie, upper-middle-class white, be it West or East Coast lifestyle. And I feel like most of his protagonists are some proxy for him, at least a facet of his personality or what he might be going through at the time. And it's a very interesting personality. Like, it's obviously very readable to dive into that but it's also one which is very bleak Mm -hmm. and after having reviewed a couple of these books and having reread less than zero and having looked at some of the film adaptations of these things i think i was getting sort of depressed like honestly like last night as i was kind of doing some reviews even before we recorded this i was like man i feel kind of shitty and i was like maybe i should stop reading all this brett easton ellis You know, I want to dive into his biography a little bit so we can understand this man better. But I guess before we do that, you identify him as one of your favorite authors. Absolutely. And I appreciate him as well, but I think you've always kind of put him up on this pedestal uh, when we talk about authors we really admire. And I guess I want to just kind of give you a platform to talk about why you think he deserves to be called at least one of your favorites, if not one of the American greats. I want to start off very clearly to say that I admire the written work. There's a lot, and I'm sure we'll get into it here, which is not so positive, that is beyond the spectrum of what is on the page. Of course, one of the tenets here at Literary Guys we've always talked about is separating the work from the author. Exactly. And we're definitely going to be doing that here. No worries. 
The thing that I really admire about his work is that it's very daring in a way that doesn't feel daring. He is willing to create characters that have very strong internal emotions, and yet they're also kind of at the same time dead. Mm. Like, it's this push and pull of so much desiring feeling and finding nothing around. This is very much this idea of perhaps a society of ghosts, almost. Like, kind of half-present, kind of not, not there. I don't think anyone else has really ever captured anywhere near as well. And I think from my own experience of feeling like an outsider or not necessarily fitting in with a group, that it's somewhat easy to relate to that. That until you kind of get yourself figured out, you form a lot of superficial relationships along the way because that's all you can necessarily do. And I definitely, I read this and I actually see myself in, in some of these characters in the way that I would say that changed a few things in my life and I could have ended up like this. Okay. I could have been there. Like, there's a lot that I feel is a similar motivation to me, but it got burned out in the sea of meaninglessness. Hmm. And so when I read it, I actually connect with this. I don't live this life or this culture at all that is described in these books. Yet I so easily could see the fact that feeling like an outsider, trying to find meaning, not finding that meaning, and then trying to fill it in with whatever vapid reality you can create for yourself and eventually lead to ruin, like, it feels very tangible. And I just think that he does such a damn good job of expressing that. So you're saying the world that he paints of Los Angeles or of New York is virtually indistinguishable from the suburban Ohio that you knew growing up. That's not what I'm saying at all. Gotcha. But I do think it's interesting because in following this man's career, we've kind of watched a person either come to terms with or perhaps explore his own sexuality in very real time as we've all been fans of his work. And so I have to imagine there's some of that questioning of identity or trying to find a place in the world kind of baked in to all of his narratives that you said that you probably related to. Mm -hmm. Certainly I, as a, as a reader of his work, I agree. I love what you said about a world populated by ghosts. I think that is a very wonderful way to describe the kind of outlook that he seems to have for society. And to me, it feels just distinctly American. Everyone obsessed with materialism and pop culture and any kind of that disposable cultural ephemera that's out there, and they derive no happiness from it. Mm -hmm. There's no substance that emptiness is filled with drugs and sex and violence. And to me, that kind of does encapsulate a lot of the unfortunate realities of America as a whole, particularly in the 20th and 21st centuries. The materialism is definitely a recurring theme to this, and I think it was a trap for Gen X. I think it was even more a trap for our generation, and I look at the current millennial and then post-millennial generations, particularly Instagram culture. I believe it's pronounced post-millennial. Millennial? Okay, no, I think that's something else. Um, and I just see that amplifying even more. Yeah. I was introduced to this Instagram account, I'm sure many of our listeners probably are aware of it, entitled Influencers in the Wild. <laughs> and to me, it's sort of a modern take on what I think maybe Brady Snellis was trying to say, that there's this beautiful exterior that people see, particularly mm. of Hollywood, in, as described in some of his early books, and then there's the reality of it. And Influencers in the Wild takes a look at this 
culture, which is, to me, insane and based almost entirely around materialism, and basically says, no, that's only what you are meant to see, that there's this whole other side of that culture, which is anything but glamorous. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think to kind of understand the the man's work, we got to talk a little about where he came from. He is a upper middle class white kid from Sherman Oaks, California, who certainly grew up around. You got to imagine, L.A. in the '70s and '80s was mm-hmm. a, a wild place to be a kid. And so I think that obviously has influenced his work a lot. But one of the things that I'm fascinated about as a writer myself is his time at Bennington College. This is a extremely liberal, focus on the liberal, liberal arts school in Vermont. Uh, I think at one time, and maybe when he was going there, was the most expensive university in the country. I believe is also one of those places where you can kind of create your own grading system as a student. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that was interesting as he's writing, you know, his debut novel that got published while he was still a student, uh, is looking at some of his contemporaries. He was close friends with and classmates with Jonathan Latham, the author of uh, Motherless Brooklyn, and Donna Tartt, the author of Goldfinch. So you've got a, a National Book Award winner and a Pulitzer Prize winner right there in the same class as him. And it's really incredible to think that these three literary powerhouses existed in the same small Vermont college at the exact same time. And I often wonder, would any of them be as good or as revered as they are if not for the other two? Was there something about having that level of talent you know, or, you know, steel sharpened steel kind of a concept Mm -hmm. that they really all kind of benefited from. It's fascinating to me to think about that. And what are the chances that those three geniuses would be in the same place at the same time? But what confidence this guy came out of the gate with, right? I mean, if you want to, you can certainly critique him a lot in terms of maybe being at times stereotypical bro in terms of how he has engaged with the world. But that confidence that he has in both his own ability and the stories that he chooses to tell is very impressive. And I think we've all benefited from from a literary perspective. I mean, we'll never know what would have happened had he not been in that environment. But the idea of publishing so early and to be in at the ground floor, I'm thinking of like some of the novels of the 60s particularly those depicting events, as you say, happening in real time, that they have a certain authenticity to them. Mm -hmm. Like they were written not from someone who did a lot of deep research about this, but was seeing this day-to-day play out in their upbringing, in day-to-day of a trip back home over Christmas break. These are very real things that are being depicted here. I don't know if all the details here, and and obviously parts of his books, as we'll get into, are intended to be imagined or other metaphysical constructs that may exist, but the types of things that were going on I think are very real and were told in this way, this very plain, simple way that makes it that much more disturbing. It's not written as if it's something amazing or shocking. It's written as if, oh, yeah, that's just what we do every day. Right. Like, you know, we're 18-year-olds and we're drinking a case of champagne over a week and then going over to friends' houses who are just doing heroin all the time with a string of drug dealers and people who are dabbling in human captivity. Like, it's just awful things that happen in these books. And that's the early stuff. It only gets worse (laughs) from there. It only gets worse. you got to imagine the party scene at Bennington College in the 80s was wild. You know, we talk about kind of this metafiction that he really kind of indulges in. 
he uh, he writes about Bennington College uh, quite frequently in his novels as Camden College. Camden, exactly. It's uh, in Rules of Attraction. That's kind of the setting for that novel, yep, yep. But, but it's also referenced elsewhere. Interestingly enough, both Jonathan Latham and Donna Tartt have novels about Camden College. So they kind of share a little bit of this universe in terms of focusing on, as you say, fictional, but probably also based a lot in reality of their experiences in this very privileged, rarefied air that they had existed in, both on the West and East Coast. Well, I think that that hopefully has whet our listeners' appetites for what is coming up here. I'm a little concerned that right in front of me there's a very nice Chardonnay that I'm not drinking. (laughs) Uh, Well done. Well done. So after our month of Brett Easton Ellis, we will be doing a listener's choice, and I think we're ready to finally announce what that's going to be. Drum roll, please. We will be doing All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark. This is a novel that I think we're all familiar with, but maybe we all haven't read. I actually realized I hadn't read it until I took a deep dive into it. Same here. You know, we had some incredible listeners' choice suggestions. If you sent it to us via tweet or through Instagram Messenger or to our email address, I have read it. So we'll certainly give a shout out to um, some of those great suggestions that we had. Maybe explain why we didn't uh, choose all the great suggestions that you guys threw our way. But this one just felt right. We haven't done a war novel since our uh, first inaugural season seemed like a right uh, kind of time to do it and it also coincides with Netflix uh, releasing another adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front uh, the same month that we will be diving into Eric Maria Remarque's classic work. Yeah, it was really a great set of books that were suggested and even the ones that we're not going to cover this month definitely are in the running for season three of yes. Literary Guys that fit into a broader story so really appreciate the feedback that we've gotten. I would ask for our listeners who haven't already taken the time to give us a review on one of the major podcast apps. Please do so. We really appreciate it. It helps us grow. Next week, we're going to be coming back with Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero, a deep dive into, I mean, just joy and delight, I think, right? Yeah, and you know what? The good news is if you chose to read Less Than Zero along with us and you're really depressed about the future of these characters, it only gets worse in Imperial Bedrooms, the follow-up. So with that, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.